0: God bless you all. Good morning. So good to be with you this morning. Would you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and one of the ushers or elders will come down the uh, rows. If you need a Bible, I think we might need some right here. Just raise your hand. Anyone else? We need one up here as well, please. And I think we're, wait for it, wait for it. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. All right. Uh, we have come as far as verse 19 in Luke uh, chapter 16. But before we, we um, dive into this wonderful feast the Lord has before us here this morning, I want to draw you back to two Sundays ago. Um, I love Bereans. You all please be Bereans. When I was teaching through, uh, line by line, through the uh, parable of uh, the prodigal son, or many know it as the lost son. If you wouldn't mind just turning back there, it's chapter 15, and I'd like to look at verse 16 in particular. I don't know. Um, I had an email uh, a listener uh, email in, and and uh, a listener, sorry, email in and say, "Hey, uh, you were mentioning the pods. I had never heard the pods." Uh, Taught this way that it was, and and I'm I'm listening to her, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know what you're talking about. I actually had to go back to the teaching of the you know our app and everything. I went back to the app, and I had to listen to that side. What do you mean animal carcass? And I think what I was trying to do is explain, you know, when we were in the sort of letting the video run, what it would have been like for these pig kind of slop the pods, what how, how disgusting it would have been for this 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 Jewish, good Jewish boy to be able to turn around and eat of this. So I think in my mind's eye I'm thinking like animal parts and innards and all of that kinda of mixed up and like yum yum kind of deal. And I and that's kind of where I was going. And I inevitably I, I, I turned around and I described the pods as being more uh sort of meat like when in actuality, I want to be very cor- cor- you know, correct here, so forgive me. I, that, that's not accurate. They're actually vegetable. They're more bean-like, specifically. Um, it's from the Karab or Kherab. Uh, tree. It's more like a husk. And I'm just pointing this out because we're Bereans. There's, you know, I'm, I'm going to blow it. There's things I'm going to get wrong. I'm going to miss, but I always want to be faithful to go back and let the flock know when I, when I blow it, when I make a mistake, you know, Hey, we go back, we study it. You continue to be Bereans. I'm going to be a Berean and we're going to always be there. And that way, if there's something I get wrong, we'll come back and it'll get corrected appropriately. Amen. All right. Well, let's uh, look at our focus here now as we, we come to uh, really verses 19 and through the rest of the chapter. You might remember chapter 16 has been focused on um, what we do with our material resources uh, for eternity, is the focus, right? And we spent the first half looking at what a good steward has been. So if this is your first time visiting Calvary Chapel and you've come in today, I want to be very clear we do not. Talk about money all the time. I don't want you to know, walk in here and go, oh, great, we just walked into one of those churches where they're online and how God is bankrupt. And if we don't send a million dollars, you know, like somehow God's hand is slack. Let me assure you, you did not walk into a church like that this morning for those that did attend. But what I do want us to understand, for those that may have not been here last week, the last few weeks, is that we do happen to be in a very, as all scriptures inspired, important passages where Jesus Christ is specifically describing really the qualifications, if I can say that, for discipleship, right? If you go all the way back, maybe the requirements. If you go all the way back to chapter 14, verse 25, he says, now when the multitudes went with him, he turned and said to them. And then he lays out just, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. And he goes through, and I'm so grateful for our Lord Jesus Christ that while he is certainly the God of truth, right? And the God of love, he's not the God of hypocrisy. He doesn't turn around and do a bait and switch. He doesn't turn around and entice crowds and groups of people in only to turn around and switch things up on you later on. No, we're to t- count the cost. He, he explained very clear, disciples, the Greek word for disciple is a learner. We're learners if we're born again believers of Christ. And we have to understand, just like we would take an account, as we're building a new building, right, we're taking an account. We know what's involved in the building project. We don't just run out and do it. There's a a responsible account that has to be done. The same thing for the believer of Jesus Christ. We're to run our lives through this grid of Scripture. And that's what it looks like, not to play Christian, and not to play church. And so that has been the, the, the focus here and I want to assure everybody here this morning that, that being a faithful steward, right, as we read about last week, um, with God's resources, it matters a lot to the Lord. It matters a lot to the Lord. We need to be kingdom-focused, right? We understand that. Um, the Bible speaks in verse 16 of chapter 16. When he when he speaks of, of finances or money, it's an Aramaic term, actually, mammon. I think we think sometimes it's a Greek. It's an Aramaic term. And the idea behind this Aramaic term is it's actually, it means one's money or possessions, technically, right? Back in uh, uh, verse um, 13, and you can see it, verse 16. But But the idea here is that he declared you cannot, in verse 13, serve God and mammon. He's making them mutually exclusive. It's not possible to live a life seeking after riches of this life and at the same time be seeking after and desiring to serve after God. You, You can't do both. It won't work that way, certainly we can use the lord's resources, his resources, for the kingdom of God, and that we all are to ten making, and that's what we do, right? But that's not our focus. The aim is not to get as wealthy as possible. The aim is to spread the great commission, the gospel of Jesus Christ. that's the point of your life and my life here on this earth. So this morning we're going to finish the rest of chapter sixteen. He is going to wreck the religious leaders. Please remember 2,000 years ago, we're talking to a Jewish mind. We're talking to religious leaders that very specifically in verse 14, now the Pharisee who were what? Lovers of money. That's who we're talking about. That's the religious leaders. Not that in the United States of America, you know, I know it's hard to find people who love money in this country, right? <laughs> now, I get it, right? No, no, I'm, I'm being facetious. We, we clearly understand that mammon is something that's very alive and well in most of the world today, at least a quarter of the world today. So as we look at these things, he, he, he's going to declare these things, he's, he's going to wreck their preconceived notions. Uh, in those days, if you were wealthy and rich, it's because certainly you've been blessed by God, and you are in right relationship with God, and, and all is well with your soul. No way could a, a beggar, a poor man, or anything like that be in communion with God in the right way. And he is just going to absolutely wreck their Jewish mind of understanding of how uh, things actually work. And he's actually going to go through, and he's going to delve into the topic of death and eternity to bring this point very, very um, clear. To light here, okay? So I'd like to read verses 16, or sorry, chapter 16, verse 19. We'll pray, and then we'll go line by line. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously. Every day, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments, plural, please notice that with me, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, he's about to rebuke him here, he's talking about the blood nine, not son by faith. Remember that your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. You understand that's the whole counsel of God. The word of God is what it's speaking of. Let them Hear them, let them hear the word. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Very fitting after what's going to happen a couple of weeks chronologically from. The time that Jesus is speaking this to the multitudes, just two weeks or so from that point, John chapter 11, he is going to resuscitate Lazarus. So very proof point right there, not to mention five months from this point, he's going to go to the cross and the crucifixion chronologically as well. Another proof point uh, where Jesus Christ will obviously uh, be crucified and then rise from the dead as well, stating that they're not going to even be persuaded For one who will rise from the dead. So proof points. Let's bow our head, we'll pray, and we'll begin here this morning. Father, we just thank you for your holy and mighty word. Lord, we just we need to slow down, Lord. I need to slow down and just take the beauty of this week and the rubble and just lay it at your feet, Lord. Lord, I I know you've set a feast before us here. Your holy word. There's nothing else like it, Lord. It's anointed, it's God-breathed, it's live, Lord. Lord, you'd set a buffet before our very feet right now. Lord, I pray that each of us would take a chair and pull up, come in and sup with you. We'd hear what your Spirit has to say, Lord. We would understand through application, through your Holy Spirit, the days and severity of the things we're reading and the days we're living in these last of the last days. And, Lord, this wouldn't just be another message. This wouldn't just be another words on a page. But your gospel and our hope, your hope through us, the confidence we have, bears light in your beautiful gospel, Lord Jesus Christ. So let us who have eyes see, let us who have ears hear what your spirit wants to say. And may we walk out of here today learners, filled, stuffed, and ready to share with the lost and dying world the hope that lies within us. We pray, God, have your way with us right now. We are disciples. So, Master, just so make more disciples and, and draw us, Lord. Remove the dross from our lives. We ask this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. Amen. So, as we look at this, I think the first question that we have to deal with is is this a parable? I think it's a fair question. We read the, the previous passage in chapter 16 last week, and we clearly understood that in context could be a parable and was given as a parable. But I, I ask you here this morning, is this a parable or is it an actual account? I think this is heavily debated within the church, not something we have to divide over, but And I I want to be clear, I don't want to be dogmatic about it, but I think there's a, a few reasons as I study these things, as the Lord reveals these things to me, that I believe this is an actual account and not a parable. And one of those main reasons I do that is because, unlike any other parable that I read in all of Scripture, this one, Jesus Christ specifically calls out a name, and he gives the name Lazarus for the beggar. So because he gave an actual name and account, I'm able to come back and go, hmm, You've never done this anywhere else. This could be an actual would Again, you be Bereans, I would go so far as to say, I believe as he's talking to those religious leaders, they're very much aware of the things that are going on. I think he's actually given an account that they're also aware of. They knew this man, Lazarus. I believe they're aware of these things that had been happening. And I know that Jesus knows their hearts, because we already know that. There's nothing hidden from the Lord. And he knows that these men, as we've already read in verse 14, now the Pharisees were lovers of money. And he knew that the sinners and the tax collectors, if you remember in chapter 15, had been coming and the heavens was opening and they're coming in, they're getting saved. And what do they? What did they do? They rebuked Jesus because they're drawing men, what, to themselves and not to the Lord. And so all this is going on in context. And I look. I believe Jesus looked right at him as he was giving this parable, knowing that this was going to stumble them. This was going to wreck them because in their Jewish mind, there is no way that a rich man is not going to heaven, and a poor beggar is. And they they can't they can't you know. Those things are mutually exclusive in the Jewish mind based on the fact of treatment and, well, we read the book of Job and all of the, you know, antediluvian period and the patriarchs and all the things that were given in the Jewish mind of where God had blessed and if he blessed, you must be in communion with God. But we know scripture teaches that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We we read our scriptures, we know our Bibles. So that's something that's easy for us. You know, 2,000 years later, we look back, oh, of course, But not so for the Pharisee. Not so for the disciples at that moment. This was groundbreaking. This was a proper handling of the word of God. Jesus was properly exegeting the law for them. The very things that they thought they understood. But missed it. Because there was no love. And there wasn't truth brought in the fullness and completion. In the way that Jesus Christ does it with the gospel. And so... When you look at this, you you have to come to either way. Again, we don't want to be dogmatic, but there's also extra biblical evidence, right? So the Latin Vulgate named this rich man Dives, right? Some of you might have have heard that. Also, uh, I think of an early papyra, papyra P75, as a matter of fact. It's in museums. Uh, It uses the name for the rich man N-E-U-E-S. That word is root to the very word we get for Nineveh. Nineveh. What did Nineveh stand for? Judgment. This rich man and judgment. Okay. So clearly we get some idea here, God using the names and hadn't used that anywhere else. But I believe the question should be asked is, well, Lord, what are you trying to convey to us? What are, we, what are you trying to explain to us? If you believe this is a parable, or if you believe this is an accurate account, what are we supposed to be getting from this? What are we supposed to be learning through your Holy Spirit? And I believe it's a similar thought, and Jesus makes it so we can't miss it, and I praise God for the Holy Spirit for this, because if I go back to chapter 16 and I look at verse 1, he also said to his disciple, there was a certain what? Rich man. That was the context as we began. What you do with your material possessions now, God's material possessions now, right, has a, has a lot to say about the future, right? where your mind is at, where your heart is at where you're at in those things. And then as we look at this passage in verse 19, what is the very first thing he begins with? There was a certain rich man. He kept it identical so that there's no way we could miss that he is continuing contextually, good hermeneutics, context is king, that the same message that he wants to communicate hasn't changed. Again, it hasn't changed, right? So both begin in a similar way. Now, the point is, how do we use our present to secure our future? How do we use our material possessions now, in the present, to enable our, I'll include our, myself and others, their spiritual and eternal future? And I think that's the point, since Jesus has already told us that the world's children are wiser than God's children At using their material resources and seek the future, right? We read that last week. Isn't that what he said? He declared it very clearly. Well, that that then begs a few questions, doesn't it? I think it begs a few questions this morning. I'd ask three for you to ponder here this morning. The first one is Do you really believe that Jesus Christ is coming? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming? The second one is, do you believe believe that Jesus Christ is going to take us to a heaven? John 14. And the third is, do you believe in the resurrection of Christ and that we too will be resurrected? I hear a lot of yeses, and that's wonderful. Maybe there's some here that are silent that are are questioning some of these things. Maybe they believe they're born-again believers, but these things haven't been settled in their heart. I pray that the scriptures will speak mightily to you this morning in these things. You see, the reality of looking at these three questions, then even attempting to address them, brings us to the point of, then what are we doing now? Because if we believe and we answered yes to all three of those, then what are we doing? How are we living? It it begs the next question. You know, Solomon called this life a vapor. He used the term Havel, Havel in the Hebrew. It's a mist, it's a vapor, it's... It's something here gone within moments. I don't know about you. I've looked at, I have four beautiful children. The Lord has blessed my wife, Lisa, and I with. And I can remember holding each and every one of them as babies in my hands. And just, um, just the witnessing the miracle of what God can do. Nothing else like it. And, um you know, my oldest is 21 today, and I look at him, and he's taller than me now, and I I just, sometimes I I have a hard time, you know, I, how did, Lord, how did that happen? Where have I been? You know, and all, you know, sometimes I try to, you know, compete with them like I used to, you know, and it's a little more, you know, the body's a little more forgiving on certain things, and You know, we go out for sports and, you know, I'm still a competitive man. I can't let them get the upper edge, you know, so we're out there and they're throwing the football and I'm, you know, grabbing the, you know, or whatever's going on and, you know, I get inside and I'm in the shower and I'm just like, oh, you know, (laughs) oh, just so ginger, you know, and my friends that are in their 70s and, you know, 60s, they're like, just wait, you just, you're just getting started. You know, later 50s, 40s, it's all a warm-up. And I'm like, oh, my. But the reality is, is life is such a vapor. It really is. You know, when we're young, we don't, I, don't, I, I didn't appreciate that. I didn't understand that. But, but now as I look at things, it's, it's Havel. I understand why Solomon said that. It's Havel. It's, it's just, it's here and gone. So we're present for moments, and what Christ is drawing us to in this passage is the eternity that's forever. But if I'm being honest with you this morning, sometimes I I live like it's reversed. More concerned about this life, you know, whether it's materials or coveting things or possessions, comfort, fun. Am I gonna have fun today? You know, I can remember it used to be four hundred one k. I need, you know, this has got to get to. Uh, I don't know, maybe. Maybe I'm not like you guys, but there was, a, you know, I tried to make sure we got to have this much. We're going to do this, that, and the other, and have a have a. I was more focused on that than the blessed hope of eternity, laying up treasures in heaven. And that's exactly what Jesus is confronting with this ideology of the rich man. It's not that there's anything wrong with having wealth. There's never been anything wrong with having wealth. The problem is, what are you doing with it? Are you consuming or are you giving? Because you can only do generally one or the other with a dollar. The dollar is an inanimate object. It's only powered by the hand and the heart behind it, through the motives that are hopefully Christ-like. Well, that's what we're reading. That's what we're talking about. That's what's stirring in minds of these religious leaders that are, what do you mean I'm not supposed to have the most lavish places to sit, the most lavish robes, the, the religious, you know, where's the kissing the picky ring, you know, the whole thing with the religious leaders. I'm supposed to have the better seat at the table. Haven't I done this? Haven't I given my life for that? Jesus is just absolutely wrecking that paradigm, wrecking that paradigm. It, it really leads me to the place that I almost have to ask the question when I run my life through the grid of Scripture, and maybe you're like me, what am I doing? How am I living? How am I living this life, you know? Because if I'm living contrary to the Scriptures, who am I living for? You know, I get caught up in the calamities, I call it, of this life often. Not the emergencies. Time is short. We're running out of time. To save the lost, do the work of God, and get so upset. I don't know if you're like me, you know, driving here or drive, I get cut off. Oh, that's it. You know, I don't always have to say something. I'm getting better with that. Pray for me. I just pray it's not you. That's the thing I always think about. Like, what if that's somebody in the law? There's Pastor Matt. Ah! You know? <laughs> Yeah, keep going, brother, you hypocrite. Um, I, you know, I can get so upset when I get cut off in traffic, you know. Um, yesterday we were out and we were doing some things. We had graduation. Congratulations to all those who graduated high school or college here. Well, I was out, went to a graduation, and we were invited by some folks in the flock. They wanted us to come out, and what a blessed time it was. And, and I forgot to take the dog out, right? Shame on me. And so the poor dog's in the house and, you know, my my wife and I, oh, what, what happens if the dog has an accident? Well, what do you mean what happens? You get home, you clean. But, but how we get so, oh, there's a calamity. You know, what if my shirt's not pressed the right way or... My house is a mess, or my, my wife, what are they going to think of my wife? Because everybody in the flock can come over anytime they want if they ever want to talk or just what 's going on here and or what about paying bills? oh i gotta you know, I got to do all this. Ooh. people worried about losing jobs, worried about food? What am I going to eat today? How much time do we give to cravings? right? Please say yes, and i 'm not the only one in here. <laughs> Like, I'm already craving. started when I woke up. You know? It's cravings, you know? I'm like, what am I? Clothing, you know? I I these pair of jeans. Boy, wouldn't it be neat to actually have a pair of jeans that I don't have to. But I put them on, right? Because I'm going to lose more weight, you know? That's not the big stuff in life. You know, what, what am I doing with the financial blessings that I've been entrusted by God as a steward? Can I, can I bring some things up that I think are the emergencies? Am I so concerned about the amount of time I'm spending with God every morning, every day, every evening? That's the emergency, not the dog having an accident on the floor. Lord, if I've been in your word, have if have you and I supped together, if we met, I need you. I need your word, I need your breath in my lungs. I spent time washing my wife 's mind with the Word of God before she walks out of the house or even out of the bedroom. My children before they go on and you know one 's interning architect one 's you know going into an education you know all the things they 're doing and did I open the Bible with them as the pastor of my home and give them the good word before they're sent out to a lost and dying world that needs that encouragement because what's poured in can be poured out are those things that are vying you know someday if the Lord tarries maybe I'll have grandchildren are they, are, am I thinking about prayer and the worship of my Lord? Those are the most important imperative things every day. As we read already, we know where the Pharisees' minds were. Lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, lovers of comfort, lovers of things of this earth. More concerned with the house they were going to live in, the cars they're going to drive, the clothing that they need to have. Well, people every day, and maybe this isn't fair that I'm saying this, but every day and every minute, how many, I haven't looked at the latest counter, if it's millions, hundreds of thousands, I don't know what the number is, are dying every minute. And many, if not most of them, are going to hell and eternally separated from God. Is that the thought that's consuming me? Or is it the new house I gotta buy? New car I gotta have? These are the things that keep me awake. These are the things that the scriptures want to draw my attention to. Because it's so easy. My flesh is so strong. Maybe your flesh is like that. It's so strong. Our young people, We just talked about graduation. Do they seek the Lord to know where God is sending them and what they're doing? Or is it just what school that accepts them and they think that's where they're supposed to be? So much God wants us to see here. They were lovers of money. That's the problem. And yet these were the men that were handling the word of God. These were the lawgivers these were the believers of the day that we read about in Scripture. I don't think a lot's changed in 2,000 years in the church. I know because it begins in my heart first. Look at verse 19. and We'll read here as we go line by line. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine Linton fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. Not just some days. God makes that very clear every day. Okay. I asked uh, the audio video team if they could pull this up on the screen here. I want to show you a murex shell. This is uh, a very interesting shellfish. If I can say it that way, shell. I guess we wouldn't call it shellfish, but shell. Many of you know Lydia in the book of Acts. She was a seller of purple linen. She was very wealthy, but she used her resources for the ministry, for the kingdom of God. Clearly a good example of that. Not that, again, wealth is not the problem. The motive is the problem. Do you see this murex shell? Very, very interesting. Um, extreme wealth, extreme wealth. Literally, just to, just to get an understanding, a drop of dye is contained in the throat of that shell. Just a drop. You literally have to take 250, yeah, it's 250,000 um, of those, crush them, salt them, let that sit for three days as you begin to allow the decomposition process to happen. Then you would take these snails, if I could say that, and you would literally go through and allow it up to another ten days, I believe I read, where you would boil it so that they would finally come to the point to release the purple dye. And when they would release that purple dye that was in the throat that causes such an amazing, beautiful color, it would only produce, 250,000 of them, a tablespoon amount worth of dye. A tablespoon amount worth of dye from 250,000, because it's so small and it's right in the throat and there's no other way to get it to release this little dye. So when we talk about this man who, it says he was a rich man and he was clothed in purple, the idea here is not just his outer garments, not saying his robe. This is a man that may be full on wearing purple on, uh, in his skibbies. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't say that inherently, but it's, it could be his, his uh, you know inner garments or whatever you want to call it, not just his outer garments. It's a very wealthy man. That's why kings were often adorned purple. The linen, the word we see linen there, the Greek, it's used of the finest material that could be ever be gathered on this earth. It would be mixed together with this dye to create the most exquisite coloring that could be seen. It's not like much of the purple we would see when we go to a, you know, a store and buy... I mean, you could even just begin to look in that, and that doesn't do it justice because that's the shell, and God's creation is gorgeous. But the linen, free information, what they would have to do over those ten days of boiling is they needed something that to, to adhere this to the linen to get it to almost like what I would call a carrier. They needed something as a carrier for the bond for the chemical process to take place the, the, into the dye into the. They would literally use, I'm going to get grossed out, human urine. So they would take this and boil this with human urine with this dye for 10 days. The stench people would talk. It was unbelievable. And then finally it produced this beautiful garment that still had a little stench with it. Ammonia. They wanted the ammonia, right? Uh, For a number of days afterwards, repeated washing. But then as you would wash it, you would slowly... Also, the die. But th- this is what he's drawing our attention to, right? Just, just how gorgeous it, it, it was. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, right? Um, you know, we read about this man. It's very interesting. Um, his name means God is my help. God is my help is what his name means. Um, but all, from all those on looking at this moment, from the Jewish mind, They'd be saying, oh, you need God's help, all right, as you stand outside here and you sit outside here. This man was full of sores. The idea here is ulcers, bleeding open wounds. And he lay, who laid at his gate. The idea in the Greek here, this word for gate, isn't, you know, I think of a picket fence. You think of a gate, right, or maybe a fence. To, oh, no, this is an enormous gate, like something you would really behold, and you would just stare at the gate and say, wow. That's an impressive gate. You know what I mean? And he desired to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. That's similar to the account that, remember the woman? She, she was like the puppies, it was, says, where she was literally just waiting for a morsel of food. And Jesus and I come for the Jews first, then the Gentiles. And she says, but, but even the dogs, even the puppies deserve just a little something. And so we see that same idea, same word here, this, 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 this begging that's going on. And the only thing that could comfort this man in the whole earth, no, no one else, there's no one else, nothing else. We read of no one that could comfort this man from these ulcers, these boils, these sores like that, except for a live animal, you know, this wild animal. Here we read of it as a dog. For you cat lovers, I just want to call that out. It is man's friend. I'm just saying. It doesn't say the cats came and licked the wound. If you've had a dog, you know the dogs come up and lick those wounds, don't they? Have you ever had a sore? The dog, does, You don't have to tell like the dog, the dog just does it. They come up and lick. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what that's about. But that's the only comfort that this man had on this entire earth was a dog coming up to try to lick his wounds. There was nothing else. There was no other comfort for this man. He was malnutritioned. He's begging, just, and it says, "Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores." So it was that the beggar died, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. One of the few passages that you have in your scripture, and as they were hearing this, they it, talking about death and eternity, of what they would have thought or what could have been expected, that when you died, that there would be an angelic being that would come and bring. Now remember, this is before the crucifixion and before the resurrection, that there would be an angelic being that would come and take you to Abraham's bosom. Now, as, as, we, as we go through this, this is important because we're going to spend a little bit of time here. But before we go much further, I want us to recognize what we read here. Because it says the rich man also died and was buried. Please read that, see that with me. The thing that I understand what Jesus is saying here is death is not a respecter. That unless Jesus Christ raptures you and I first, every man, woman and child in here today is going to die. And we need to just come to that reality, in fact. And it, didn't, it doesn't matter about your race, it doesn't matter about your wealth. Death is not a respecter of social status. I, I can tell you here, I do more funerals than I do weddings a year. For the believer, when we think of death, we say, oh, where's your sting? Because we're overcomers. But those that may be here this morning that don't know Jesus Christ or that are watching this online or hearing this on the radio, just take a moment to think about that. There's no one that has a get out of death card. A get out of jail card. Everyone's going to die apart from the rapture. If he should rapture us first. And then it mentions Abraham's bosom. The angel came and got the Old Testament saints. Now, again, this is one of the few places we see in scripture. uh, We don't find any other way to heaven. There's no other way to heaven than than this. We see this here, okay? And we're told that really that's through Jesus Christ, not through an angel. It's through Jesus Christ. Now, I've been with people when they die, and it just reminds me of what I read in John 14. Most of the part, it's a very peaceful process for the born-again believer. Sometimes there's pain and different... But I've been there when people have said... Jesus, as though they're seeing Jesus or at that very moment before they go to be with the Lord. And it's the most beautiful thing because I discern and sense his presence right in that room with them. And they're calling out and crying out to Jesus. And I know it and I feel it. And I don't doubt it for one second. It's a beautiful privilege to be there for that. Jesus is there. Hold your finger here. Please turn your Bibles to John 14. I just thought about that we should look at that where hope our confidence comes because it's not an angel that I look for when I die I'm not looking for an angel I'm looking for Jesus Christ and the reason for that is because Jesus told me so in John chapter 14 verse 1 Jesus says let not your heart be troubled you believe in God believe also in me in my father's house are many mansions many rooms if it were not so, I would not have told you, or I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. I believe that with all my heart. I know that to be true. I've, I've all but witnessed it. I may not be able to see the spiritual, you know, that way, and see Jesus standing before that person, but I, I know what's happening in the spiritual realm. I was very privileged when my mother went to be with the Lord, and some of you have heard that account and story. When my mother was passing, it was that very moment. My wife knew. My wife discerned it. She said I, I, uh, my mother was from Rochester, New York, and we still had stuff as we were moving back and forth. As we were caring for her, she was on hospice, and I praise God for hospice and those that, uh, nurses that work in the field of that. And as I was there caring for Mom, and Lee was caring for Mom, um, we wanted to get the rest of her stuff down here. And so we had rented one of those U-Hauls to, to drive up to Rochester. It's only about a five-hour 5, five hour drive. Um, and so we had it sitting out front, and I was getting ready to go in. And, and I remember that morning when I woke up, Lee grabbed my hand, and she said, honey, no. And my wife isn't like that. If you know Lisa, she's not, she doesn't, she's, she's not like that. She, she turned to me and she says, no, not, no, it's not time. I said, "Believe you know, we got to get the bed. We got to we have this other stuff. I, I wanted to at least be as comfortable as possible for our last days. Not thinking. I mean, I've been around how many people when they're dying. I I always recognize the systems. I know the fever. I know the th- I Like, I see it. I, I know what to look for. I. I it, there's a sort of the Lord does it in a, in a very beautiful way, a laborious way many times. And so, but I couldn't recognize. I don't know if that was God's protection or hand in the moment. I just couldn't, I couldn't see it happening. I and um, I remember very clearly. Uh, she says, "You know, I'm going to have one of the guys come and, and we'll we'll drive the U-Haul back." And 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 I said, "Okay." And then several hours went by, and she says, "Okay, I'm I'm going to take it now. We're going to go now, and this person will follow me. You follow? They'll follow behind. So I'll go. I'll go. I'll take that. No, no, you need to stay here." And I'm looking at her. And I'm like Wiley. Mom's going to go be with Jesus. I said, no, Lisa. I mean, come on, honey. I'm an undershift. This is what I do. I'm, I, I'm in touch with the spirit. I know all these things. I didn't see it. I couldn't see it. She says, when I leave, I said, okay. So she got in the vehicle, and the person drove the, the U-Haul van thing to take it back. Because we, She says, you know, no, it's not good. And I'm, she's my helpmate. It's good to listen to our helpmates, guys, and the spiritual... It's good to listen to our helpmates. So I, I said, okay. So she drove the thing back. Couldn't have been 30 seconds. maybe, maybe a minute. I don't want to exaggerate. Maybe a minute later. I look at mom and she starts the rapid breathing prod, and I kind of double look and I'm like, what? And then it just it, it dawned on me. This is this is the moment I'm in. I've been in this moment. I mean, even back in college, I took a death and dying courses where I went into retirement homes and I would sit with people who're dying. I studied the I like I've been around it probably a hundred times or more, and so this was happening. And so I looked, and I t- and I sat with her, and I, I I experienced what I'm describing. What Jesus says, He says, "And if I go to prayer place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I'm going, there you may also be, or you may be also. And where I go, you know the way. You know the way. You know, sorry. And I go, you know, and the way you know." In that moment, I understood this scripture better than I've ever understood it in my whole life. As I watched my mom, uh, I brought her hand as far as I could, and then Jesus took her hand and brought her all the way home. And I discerned in that room angels and the presence of Jesus, and I even discerned a touch on my, my, my shoulder. Some of you have heard me share this account. And I remember turning over. It was actually to my left. And I turned over, and above in our house, we have scripture written above, like, the door jams, okay? And I remember, and it said, because all I kept thinking is, what do I do? What do I do? I want to do something, Lord. Let me help. <laughs> Let me help. This is what I do, Lord. I'm your servant. Let me help. Please. This is my mother. Please give this to me. He said, no. He said, this is my work. And when I looked over the left side, it says, be still and know that I'm God. That was the one I had over there. I didn't even remember. That was the one that was above it in the living room. Was, her bed was right there. And there was a piece. The boys were outside in the yard playing. They were a lot younger, 2017, and this whole thing was happening. And I remember calling the boys. I said, come on, come here, boys. She's, she's no longer in her body, but look at her body one last time because she was with Jesus now. My boys came in. They looked, loved, gave her one more kiss. It's her body, that way she's with the Lord. And they went, and I says, you go play. This, this, is, this is a time of rejoicing, a time of joy. And then I, I praised God, and I called my wife, and I said, Lisa, mom just went. And she says, I know. When you hear that kind of stuff, you're just like, wow, Lord, there's so much beyond that I can't understand. And so when God is using these things here, and he's being so matter-of-fact, I'm paying attention. Because he's speaking to me about things that are of heaven, not just things that are of the earth. And so Abraham's bosom, I, this is matters that all of us should be paying attention to this because it has to do with our eternity. Now, I've heard scholars and and pastors and teachers, I've heard them teach, you know, Abraham's bosom, you know, they'll quote Ephesians 4, and they'll say, well, he first descended before he ascended, you know, he who ascended first descended before he ascended, and they'll go through the passages, and they'll say, what was he doing at that moment? Well, those three days, Jesus went to hell, and he was actually, like, setting captives free and this whole thing, And, and look, I don't want to be dogmatic about it, but I don't believe that's what my Lord and Savior was doing, And I'll tell you why. Because throughout every passage I read in scripture, every time it's talking about a righteous or a born again believer or one that is saved by faith, they're always doing what? They're looking or they're going up. They're never going down. They're never descending. It's only the unrighteous, those that reject Christ, the unbeliever that descend or go down. As a matter of fact, this understanding comes from Greek mythology, if you want to be specific. And many of you who've grown up in a Catholic background or the idea of purgatory, it's all in this area. Because the idea in Greek mythology teaches Hades. And they teach in Hades, and they use that word to describe it as two compartments. One compartment, I guess you might say, two sides of the compartment. One side of the compartment is for those that were good people, that's how mythology would say it. They don't use terms like born again. And then it would say, bad people go on the other side. And this idea that you're in this sort of holding tank until Christ does the work, and then you get brought up. That's where all of that false doctrine and this whole idea that's unbiblical teaches this. And and it plays into that same understanding that Christ descended... Let me ask you, friends. My God, Jesus Christ who was in heaven outside of creation, came into creation. He was ascended already. What did he first do? He descended to the earth. What did Jesus do through the immaculate conception? Did he not descend from where? Heaven. And then did he not ascend afterwards? There's nothing that's saying, yes, the lower parts, the earth, this is what we would call that because you have a firmament in the skies. You have the atmosphere, right? Exosphere and all the other things up there. But there's nothing that actually says specifically that I can find in scripture that says that he actually dwelt. And it says, oh, he went, you know, set the captives free. Yes, that's you and me through the work of the cross. I don't believe Jesus ever went to hell. I don't believe there's there's anything that says it that way through scripture. I think people implied that additional. And, And if you want, turn to Ephesians 4 with me and we can look at that passage, just just quickly, so that you understand why I'm saying what I'm saying. Look right down at verse 7 in chapter 4. But each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high he led captive captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended? No problem with that. He came from heaven and came down to earth. Into the lower parts of the earth. This is the lower parts of the earth. Because remember, when you think of the earth, you have an atmosphere, you have an exosphere, you have a firmament as it describes in Genesis. He also descended in is also the one who what? Ascended, correct, because he did afterwards through the what? Ascension and back into heaven, standing or seated at the right hand of the Father. Far above what? All the heavens. Remember, Paul talks about a first, a second, third heaven. He's, again, the first heaven's what? The, you might say sky, second heaven's the firmament, what we think of as the space or the atmosphere and exosphere. And the third heaven is actually the place, what we would refer to as paradise in heaven the true paradise that we would call it that's the third heaven that the Bible describes or Paul if you read his writing describes that in his letters that he might fulfill all things absolutely what was he fulfilling that he's the resurrected Christ reigning and and going into heaven and doing what because we still have a great accuser don't we or so he calls himself great a liar the devil trying to take down the brethren and the cistern if I can say it that way right so you're going to correct my grammar too probably that's okay my brothers and sisters, right? The believers, and he's doing what? When, when they're being judged for the sin, he's saying, and my blood has washed them, and he's been cleansed by the blood of the lamb, forgiven, redeemed, justified, nothing more. You have nothing on him. That's what's happening all the time, right? Satan's not kicked out of heaven yet. You, you understand that, right? You, you know revelation. That doesn't happen until later. He's not kicked out of heaven. He still goes to and fro. So I say that because I want us to understand what the Bible's teaching on this. He says in John 14, I will come again and receive you to myself. So it's not that I look to the angels as though he was saying this, which would have been accurate. Obviously, the Lord wrote it because he was there presently with with them at that moment as he's saying this. But after the crucifixion and the resurrection and then the ascension, He now comes for every believer, you and I, and he is the first person when our eyes close on this earth and they open again for the believer, he is the first person I believe you see because of John 14, arms wide open and running into a full embrace of love like you've never ever experienced in your whole life. That's that's what we, that's our inheritance. It's beautiful, isn't it? The point here is the rich man, who at that time, surely thought he was going to heaven. Where does he go? To hell, to Hades. But the beggar, Lazarus, who all that would have heard Jesus speaking at this time when it was originally written to the Jewish mind, would have thought, there is no way, this guy's got secret sin, that's why he's struggling, that's why, and where does he go? Abraham's bosom, heaven. It's not the same as Hades and hell, and that's sort of what I'm... The other thing I want you to catch here, please, hopefully all of us, whether you believe this is a parable or an actual account, either way, are both resurrected? Both are resurrected, aren't they? And both have a conscience, don't they? Both are very aware of where they are and what's going on. They didn't lose any ability to think or process information. No, as we're going to read here in a moment, no. We read in verse 23, here as we go on, he says that the beggar died and was carried and And by the angels to Abraham, so the rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments, plural. Please, you know, somehow circle that S so we we get that straight. Hades, that's where he is, in hell. He lifted up his eyes. That makes sense again, because where is heaven, or where is Abraham's bosom, as it was called at the time, heaven for us they? Where is it? Up. It's not over, it's not down. As Greek mythology would teach, where is it? It's up. And what do we read here? Very same thing in the Greek language as we read in the English language. And he, being torments in Hades, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off. And Lazarus in his bosom. Can you believe what the religious leaders, when hearing this, they must have been beside themselves. What? How could this be? Eyes looking up, seeing Abraham. Two places separated, right? Both aware of their eternal state. The one that was stricken in this life is now comforted in the next, and the one in this light who sought all the you know the lavish and the living lavishly was living in torment, hell, plural torments. The rich man, fully aware of his suffering, tormented as we're going to read in flame this idea is intense pain, anguish and distress. That's what that's what happens to the unbeliever to those that reject Jesus Christ. It's, the Bible describes it even as a gnashing of teeth. You see I, I suggest to you because of the havel the vapor because it's so fleeting it's so temporary this life it's here one minute gone the next. To me, it's even common sense to focus more on eternity than the here and now. And that's exactly what Jesus is drawing these religious leaders and the disciples who are claiming to be believers, learners, disciple in the Greek, a learner, after he's writing their minds and understanding of these things as well. Because it's forever, it's eternal. Right? The righteous go up, the wicked go down throughout the whole Bible. This is serious stuff. It's real. Whether you believe it's a parable or an actual account, that's how it's referenced. Do you realize that Hades in Scripture, just if you take some notes, just, it's used 11 times in the New Testament Scripture. 11 times. Eight of those times, it comes directly out of the mouth of Jesus Christ himself as it's captured by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Out of 11 times, Hades, hell. Okay? Gehenna. Another term, different than Hades. Gehenna, we read about in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. It describes the lake of fire, the very place that one day the dead and Hades will cough up and then the books will be opened and then they will be cast, those unbelievers, forever into the lake of fire. The devil as well and the Antichrist and the false witness. It's used 12 times in the New Testament scriptures. 11 times from the mouth of Jesus. I just think that's important here. The bottomless pit, os, in the Greek, or if you prefer abuso, as some people like to say. It's used nine times, eight times out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. It's a place where fallen angels and demons uh, would go. Apparently they didn't like it because we read in Luke chapter eight, remember that in verse thirty one when they, he was going to go to the abyss when Jesus was casting the demon. On. He says, eh, "No, I'd rather go into the what?" He thought it would be better. He wanted to go into the swine, and then the swine ran off and ran down. He, you know why? Because they, he didn't. The demons didn't like living in the swine either, so they're like, you know, just kill them so they can escape and go to the abyss or the abyss or abyssos. And in Second Peter two four we see another reference to hell, tar or Tartarau in the Greek, Tartus, right? It's a place of judgment. Here we read it's for fallen angels, and they're put in chains. So maybe a kind of a prison or something for fallen angels. And then in our Old Testament, right, we read of Shaol, or as many people pronounce it, Sheol, but Shaol in the Hebrew. It's not the same as hell. It's actually a broad umbrella term, okay? And it can be grave, it can be hell, it can be a pit, it can be the underworld. Uh, scripture in the Old Testament uses it for the righteous and the unrighteous when it's talking of the grave or David, uh, you know, where will you find me when I'm in the you know, grave? He's talking about she, Sheol in the grave, I, you're always there, right? It, it doesn't matter, right? Or, or the, you know, the wicked, right? The same way it can be used for the grave, but it can also be used as a place of torment, but it's definitely not Gahana that we read about in the Greek in Revelation. The point is, if you just look at those three examples, right, that I just gave a minute ago, Hades, Gahana, and then um, Tarturio, right, or Tardis, if you prefer. Uh, if you just count those up, that's 32 times, 32 times that we read about hell or a lake of fire, if you prefer, and 27 of the 32 It's directly out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. We're told eight more times about the eternal state of those separated from God, about hell, than we're told about the eternal state of believers. You know why? Because Jesus knew how important it is that we in this present life must make a decision that has eternal consequences. Romans chapter 10, verse 7, makes it very clear. Very clear. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart. He rose from the dead, and you will what? Be saved. You will be living eternal with Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that if you're here this morning you don't know Jesus, you pray that prayer. Or if you're hearing this online, pray that prayer. Or if you're in your car and you're hearing this on the radio, call the church. We want to get you a Bible. We love you. We want to help you. In your walk with Christ, discipleship. You see, the point is the stakes are high. The stakes are high here. What you believe in the present now has a direct relationship to where and whom and we'll spend eternity with. Okay? And that's By the way, for the rich and poor alike, Okay, rich rich men, don't trust in your wealth. That's not your security. Use it for Christ. Use it for the kingdom of God. That's what he's describing to us in chapter 16. To the poor, don't trust in your lack, as though somehow you're going to receive a reward because you were a good person and you lacked much but didn't know Jesus Christ either. No, it put the kingdom of God first. And as we continue to read here, look. let's finish this passage up here this morning. He says, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. The very thing he's asking is the very thing you cannot receive in hell. There is no more mercy. There is none. It's absent. It has to be. Because the choice that this rich man made in this life There's not a do-over. There's not a second chance. He's looking for mercy, and the answer is no. And send Lazarus that he may, he still thinks he's in control, this rich man. Do you catch this? Hey, send uh, the servant over there, you know, in heaven. You know, have him come on over here. I, I could use some water. Do you get the idea? He says, just he wants a, just a, Drip of water. Have you ever been so parched that your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth or you literally can't breathe? You know, I mean, that's what we're talking about here. And you just want a tip, just a drip of water. But imagine that for eternity. He says, Have him dip at the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. He says, I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, again, this is a rebuke he's going to get This is not a blood, This, excuse me, this is a bloodline, like son, like son of Abraham, right? Speaking of Judaism, he's the father of, of the Jews. That's what he said when he says, son, this is not, not in regards to a believer or in regards to by faith, son. Remember that your lifetime, you received good things. You were given your reward. You wanted that. That's what you wanted. I gave you over to your own will. And likewise, Lazarus, evil things. You never even helped Laz with all your wealth, with all your, you thought that was for you and you lived lavishly. You crushed 250,000 shells so you could have the most beautiful purple arrayed garments and documents and your house looks great and all these other things in the dark. And yet there are people dying and going to hell and you're not, this rich man, wasn't He's right at the gates and he's not even feeding him. It's right before him. God allowed this man to be placed right before the rich man Lazarus was put there and he was indifferent to it. He says, evil is what you did. But now he's comforted and you're tormented. The Jewish mind was, oh my. The the religious leader, oh my. What? How dare you? Jesus speak such things you know what Jesus is doing giving them a proper understanding of the word of god and besides all this between us and you there is a great gulf that word gulf is chasma in the greek chasma it's the word we get for chasm and it says it's fixed so that those who want to come, want to pass from here to you cannot i always pay attention when jesus says it cannot those are exclusive it's it's not it's not well, maybe, no, it's at absolute. nor can those from there, from there pass to us. Some of you maybe remember, back years and years ago I don't know if it was in the '80s or '90s, I can't remember Robin Williams uh, was in a movie called "What Dreams May Come." It had the most vivid colors, and it really was a beautiful, it looked like a beautiful film. However, the whole message was a lie. There was a woman that had committed, I believe, if I remember correctly, she committed suicide. And the idea was is that Robin Williams was going to go and try to retrieve his wife from hell and bring her to heaven. We just read there is no mercy at that point because the decision's already been made. Um, And very clearly we read here, that's bad theology, that's bad doctrine. And I I feel so sorry for all those people that watched that movie and and said, oh, that, you know, it's like tons of these other books that are written, uh, you know, redefining who God is, his character is, what was the one about the cabin in God, and they tried to make God a woman. All of it's a lie from the pit of hell, the shack and all that junk. It's a lie from a pit of hell. And it's just wrecked people because they don't read the Bible. So, and and I'm not saying that, please, if if you're one of those people that, please, I want to bring you out from, the Lord wants to bring you from that to his word, to the doctrine of God. He wants to give you a hope that doesn't fade. Then he said, I beg you, and um, eroteo, er, sorry, eroteo. Eroteo in the Greek. That word, some have taken it to mean pray in the King James, but it actually, it's it's more accurately translated in the New King James. It means beg. It means plead. He's trying to beg and plead. You therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Please recognize he's fully conscious conscious and aware of all things that are going on. There's no annihilationism. There's no... uh, You know, sleep that way, soul sleep, and all that, again, lies from the pit of hell. He's fully aware of his torment. I've often said when I've counseled people that were considering um, suicide, I look at them and I, you're not going to do it. What do you mean? I'm like, I have every right. "No, No, you're not. You're not. You're blood bought. Just throw that away. If you're a believer in Christ, it's not your decision. And they just look at me, you know, what do you mean? I'm telling you what I mean. You don't have that option. The problem is not your body. You escaping your body solves nothing. It's a spiritual problem. Just as this rich man is tormented there, this is forever. He's tormented forever. This is he. Did, even if somebody takes their life, by, they're not escaping anything. They're going into an eternal torment forever, which is why my heart is so burdened for those that are even contemplating that, because I bring a past that's a lie again from the devil. That's not. There's nothing. You're not escaping anything. It's not going to get better, or easier, or anything like that. He says, "For I have five brothers that that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. He's well aware of it. Unless they come to hell." Abraham said to him, "said to him, They have Moses. They have the word of God. They have Moses and the prophets." Let them hear them. It's powerful and necessary. And he said, look at this, this man. he's This rich man, he's arguing with Abraham. No, father, Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will, please circle this in your Bible, so important. There is no misunderstanding here. Repent he knew exactly what the problem was. He knew the exact reason. There's no highway to hell party going on with keggers, and you know, we're living it up, and party hardy, and all that junk that you hear people say, and I grew up thinking, and hearing, and you know, believing at one time, and all that nonsense... They're all lies because when you're in hell, the the unbeliever, they know exactly why they're there because they, in this lifetime, they had an opportunity to repent. What was his sin? This man's sin was being indifferent, not using his, well, not believing in Jesus, not believing by faith in God. That's his sin. That's why he's in hell. But his life lived like it. He, He lived like that as well, you know, so sumptuously and not using the resources given by God for the kingdom of God. But he said to him, and I love that the Lord Jesus brings this out. If they do not hear Moses, they don't hear the word of God. If you can't, if you're here this morning and you don't believe the word of God, you have a real problem. You have a real problem because God is saying, I I have borne witness to me, to Messiah. He says, I've borne witness to myself throughout all the word of God. can't go through a chapter without seeing Jesus in it through your whole Bible, all 66 books. Neither will they Be persuaded through one rise from the dead. And again, as I said in our beginning, the introduction, chronologically, two weeks from this point, he would resuscitate Lazarus. And then in chapter 12, they want to kill Lazarus because they don't want the testimony there. They don't want to know those proof. We don't want that. He's right. The Lord's always right. Fast forward five months. He's crucified on a cross, appears to over 500 people, right? He's going to go up to heaven like that. Before he goes, he says, I give you a great commission. Go therefore. Why? Because there were still unbelieving men and women because of the hardness of their heart. He wasn't just giving us something to do while we tarry and wait for Jesus, right? He's not just giving us like a homework assignment. Hey, just keep busy till I come. No, you want to use a word grammatically or in the Greek, you would be English, the occupy word. Occupy till I come. That means be busy with my father's business. But that's what he says. So this, this brings us to this point. We're going to have communion here. And this brings us, I just have a couple last comments for you this morning because it's, it's speaking to my heart first before your heart. I'm I'm incredibly um, moved by the Lord's words. And, and the reality is we need a biblical understanding of hell not a fire and brimstone or legalistic understanding. I think that's an important point. Hell is real. Heaven is real. And I think the point that Jesus is making is we need to live like it. I need to live like it. That needs to be my focus. Again, that's the whole point of chapter 16 as he's speaking to disciples and comparing them, you know, with the religious leaders, you know, unrighteous mammon, as he called it. You know, children of the world, they're more faithful after going after their unrighteous mammon, than children of God using their righteous mammon for the kingdom of God. That's that's what I read in my Bible in chapter 16. Again, I'm, I'm wrecked by that because I know it's true in my heart. I know it's true in my life. You know, to be a good steward means I'm faithful with my finances and everything. I even said that wrong. I'm faithful with my master's finances. It's not mine. See, I... I can't even get out of my own way. Again, Jesus said it in chapter 16, verse 13. You can't serve God and mammon. They're mutually exclusive. A requirement for every disciple, every believer, right? Remember what 2 Corinthians 9, 1 through 15 teaches, that God loves a hilarious giver desires his type of disciples to give from a joyful, submitted, and worshiping heart. That's, that's what God wants. But I think it's important, because of the days we're living, to point this out, that your giving is between you and Jesus. I'm not sharing these words because I'm reaching into your wallet. I'm sharing this because this is what the Bible teaches, that disciples need to be mindful that it is our joy, To give. And that's what disciples do. They give abundantly of what God has given them because it's not theirs anyway. And they're doing it for what? To bless others, to disciple the church, all the things, missionary, all the things that we do in this life. It's not to build up our own. See, that's what my flesh wants to do. Always worry about having enough. What if? What if? But the Spirit of God is saying you have more than you need. My grace is sufficient. You have abundance. Because you have my Son, Jesus Christ. You're a rich man. Live like it. Live like it. So we see the extremes in Scripture, right? No we see the truth what we see is the extremes in the world the guys that are trying to rip people off and flee sheep call them up and say send me your two million and I'll bless you All right, try that once they'll hang up on you the other extreme disciples of Christ aren't giving they don't give, they're not being a part of the Lord's work both wrong both unbiblical Remember, just like Jesus said, the truth and the love is perfect.